Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone, wherever you're listening from. Welcome back to Sophie's Stories, the podcast bringing you original handcrafted stories right from my hands and fingers back into your ear holes. So welcome. Um, I don't know how, after all this time, I, I managed to um, mess up my own intro every time. But anyway, um, now, today is kind of exciting because today is a little bit of a different episode for you. So as I've been on this little journey myself, I'd like to provide a little bit of variety on the pod every now and then. So I'm now starting a little series that will probably only run like once a month or once every couple of months um, called Books That Were Banned and Why. Now, I have a little personal fascination with censorship and what that has meant in the past and what effects censorship will have on our future. So today I'm starting with one of the most controversial books that you've probably heard of. It's a classic and was an absolute enigma at the time it was first published. I'm going to tell you all about the book, why it's important that it's not censored, and secondly, why it ever was censored in the first place, why it was ever banned. So I really hope you enjoy the change of pace and please let me know your thoughts. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Sophie Stories Podcast and all the rest of my episodes, including my short stories and my series stories are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Deezer. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the first episode of Books That Were Banned and Why. So, if you are a bookworm, you may have already guessed what our first subject matter will be for this series. But if you haven't, today's series is going to be discussing Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. So Lady Chatterley's Lover was one of the most famous books ever to be banned in the UK. And in certain periods in the UK, I feel like we've been like known for not being as sexually free as our European neighbours. And this book being banned is a fantastic example of that. So what is Lady Chatterley's Lover all about? Well, to give you an overview, this novel was seen at the time as sexually explicit. It was first published in Italy in 1928 and then in Paris a year later in 1929. It was then banned in the UK and the publishers, who were Penguin, you might know them for all their like fancy book covers, were brought to trial under the Obscene Publications Act. It was a dramatic trial, long running and highly, highly publicised at the time. Eventually, 
Penguin won the rights to publish the book in its entirety, so the complete unabridged version, in the year 1960. And the first 200,000 copies published sold out within the first day in England alone. People were people were all over this book. So, before I get too ahead of myself, let's get down to the absolute raunchy details of this book because there are many, don't get me wrong. I feel like wherever else this episode goes, that's a really good place to start, so let's go. So, this book follows the story of a young married woman named Constance Reed. You guessed it, that is Lady Chatterley. She was married to an upper middle class baronet husband named Sir Clifford Chatterley. And I just want to make a side note here. If anyone else grew up in the UK, I'd like to note that the only other time I have actually ever heard the name Clifford used in earnest was in Clifford the Big Red Dog, the children's book. And I'm pretty sure it was a TV show. That's no shade to anyone named Clifford. (laughs) I just have absolutely never, ever heard of anyone else with that name. Um, So will anyone named Clifford please stand up if you could. Because I'd love to meet you. I've I've never I've never met anyone named Clifford. So Clifford in the book is described as like hot, sexy, like this like ripped dude who unfortunately had been paralyzed by the waist down during the Great War. So for anyone listening, that's World War One. Now I'd like to say before we go on that even though this is a fictional character, this would be an absolutely horrible reality if this is what your life had turned out to be. Um, I think it's easy for people who don't have like any affiliation to the army or live in essentially most Western countries, bar definitely a few, I did say most, um, to forget about the absolute hellscape that is any war torn country and like you've literally just come back from the first world war and now you're paralyzed from the waist down like it is absolutely horrible it must have been terrible for him uh if he were real but i'm sure he did represent many people who were real so i just wanted to make a note on that um that whatever we discuss from now on i'm sure he did represent lots of people who came back from the first world war and their lives were just changed irrevocably. So um, anyway back to the story. So Lady Chatterley begins an affair with her gamekeeper named Oliver Mellers. Now it has been noted in Encyclopedia Britannica that Oliver Mellers represented just like total sex. Like the animalistic need behind her needs that drove her sexual desire so he was meant to represent like that animalistic requirement for sex and um that was that was generally the um well at the beginning of the book definitely that was the purpose um for his character which i think is like an, a really interesting point when I was researching um, what happened here and about the book it's a really interesting point and it, it's also even more interesting 
um, when we acknowledge the class difference, the social class difference between the two characters. So on one hand, we've got one character who's Lady Chatterley, who is absolutely slap bang in the middle of generational wealth and aristocracy. And the other, Oliver, who hasn't come from that background. Now, I haven't come to any conclusions about that link myself. However, I'm sure there's something in there relating to the class divide and possibly sex work, or maybe even a comment on this link as it pertains to being taken advantage of by society. Um, but I would love to hear any thoughts you have on that because I'm yet to make up my mind. Um, I think there's definitely an interesting comment in there, but I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Um, and I'm not saying anything disparaging about class differences or sex work. Um, it's just an interesting note to make um, on the story overall and the story's meaning. Another interesting thing I read when I was researching this banned book is that Lady Chatterley basically comes to the realization that she cannot live just in herself, like within her the bounds of her mind all day. And when I read this, it, it kind of brought up two things for me. So one, it's possibly a comment on how much your mind can control the way you feel and how it can control what your reality manifests as. And two, that love or desire and togetherness, the want for a relationship, requires both your body and your mind to be successful. Which, although 1928 wasn't like a super long time ago, um, it's it was pretty progressive thinking to, you know, understand in a society where you're basically told you've got to get married to the first person you see, there's no premarital sex, um, sex is a very taboo subject, no one speaks about it openly, um, and they don't really speak about love or true love or anything like that. None of the so sort of romantic motifs that we have now um, pertaining to love and marriage to make a point of noting that you know your body and your mind are basically one when you fall in love with someone so still pretty progressive for 1928 right okay so now we have a little overview on what the book's about and a bit of context on what was going on at the time sort of culturally and socially, let's get into all the juicy reasons as to why it was banned. And good God, I cannot wait to read you what I'm sure are some absolutely crazy newspaper articles from the time. So this first quote is from um, a publication called The Sphere. Um, it was published in 1930, which was when D.H. Lawrence passed away. Um, I think it gives a real good insight to the feelings surrounding his reputation and this book. Um, this author was really charitable um, with his comments, but 
what I like about it is it's positive itself, but it proves how people were feeling about D.H. Lawrence and his works at the time. So this quote is from an author named Cecil Roberts um, from the publication The Sphere, like I said. And the quote reads, The death of D.H. Lawrence has brought forth a number of biographical studies of this novelist, which have been marked alike by various degrees of hysteria. It seems impossible for Lawrence's admirers to write about him with moderation or any sense of humour. If you will not grant offhand that he is immortal, the greatest product of our age, then you are worse than an income poop. You are one of those vile, obtuse and vicious slanderers who, in the name of decency, making of it a cloak for your foul disposition, persecuted and noble man. We were assured by one famous lady that Lawrence's death had taken place. End quote. So, firstly, look, let's be really real here. <laughs> The liberal use of the word nincompoop in print and <laughs> in an actual publication is absolutely delicious. Secondly, I think it's fair to assume Cecil Roberts really loved um, D.H. Lawrence and his works. Um, and to be perfectly honest, if it was 1930 and I had the opportunity to read soft porn on my lunch break, I'd be pretty happy with that writer too. So um, I can see where the love was coming from. Although, of course, um, that's not what this author was saying, Cecil Roberts. He was saying, you know, he was one of the minds of our time. And for you to say he was anything less is absolutely preposterous. You know, his works were some of the most fantastic works ever written. And you should give him his credence for the hard work he's done. So, um, yeah, I... I, I wanted to steer clear of like super negative quotes here because I was like, I'm sure there'll be some absolutely like filthy stuff. And I just thought this was great. This guy was just like, I've got your back, D.H. Lawrence. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but I do think it's a great indication of the kind of feelings that surrounded the book at the time, the opinions of his peers and the general public and even D.H. Lawrence's own acquaintances which is what Cecil is talking about um, in this publication in the sphere. I also really love the dichotomy of this quote too. I really admire this writer's confidence to go straight for Lawrence's critics and call them literally all the names under the sun. <laughs> this is the 1930s literary version of your best friend standing up for you when you like rebound too quickly after a breakup or like some guys really bothering you in a club like this guy was like oh don't worry about it haters like I'm gonna go and publish this whole article about how good D.H. Lawrence is so you guys can just sit down you you ain't publishing no articles uh -uh -uh. like he wasn't having any of it which I thought was lovely to see um now let's get on to the juicy deets because Obviously, this book was banned, but how was it unbanned? Like, oh, 
This honestly sparks my interest so much. So I can't wait to tell you all about the trial. Now, the trial itself was super, super interesting. And some of the content I found on the trial was absolutely spectacular. Some of it was super shocking, which I'll go into a little bit later, but I swear to God, like, put your, like, (laughs) put your big girl, big boy, big person hat on right now and just, like, listen to the shit that was going on in 1960. So, let me just set the scene for you. We've we've gone forward a little bit. We've traveled, we've traveled into the future. So let me just set the scene. Um, my best friends always take the mic out of me because I always say picture this. So picture this. It's 1960. It's the first time the much loved Coronation Street aired in the UK was in 1960. John F. Kennedy just won the election in the US. And in general, there were a lot of cultural shifts going on related to what kind of music we were listening to, what we were watching and wearing, which indicated a definite appetite to live a much more liberal life. 1960s was when miniskirts were coming in, like women were wearing makeup for their pleasure, not for any requirement. Um lots of fabulous music came out in 1960 like there were just a lot of cultural changes so 1960 was also the year of the 30th anniversary of dh lawrence's death and penguin the publishers had pre-arranged and printed 200,000 copies of Lady Chatterley's Lover, which is the name of the book, in order to finally publish a complete collection of his works for the 30th anniversary of his death. Because up until then, they had most of his other works um, and they were able to publish them and have them all together, but they wanted the complete unabridged collection of D.H. Lawrence's work. So that's what sparked this whole juicy situation. So this sparked the desire to engage in a trial to have the publishing restrictions on the book in its full form lifted. So Penguin stated that the book could be shown to have redeeming social merit, but they would have to prove that in court. And I'd also, I just, (laughs) I just want to make a note (laughs) I feel like the term redeeming social merit applies to like how I approach difficult tasks. Like I feel like I'm terrible at loads of stuff. (laughs) I'm terrible at so many tasks but the only thing saving me is redeeming social merit. Like like you know I mess something up like I buy someone around (laughs) or like you know I mess something up I'm like I'm really sorry I hope you have a fabulous day like I'm never rude about it but Um, I just love the term redeeming social merit. I feel like that could apply to so many things and I'm going to start using it in my day-to-day life. So another juicy, juicy. So uh, just imagine, right, the confidence that Penguin have at this point. So they've 
pre-printed 200 before the trial has even begun they've pre-printed 200,000 copies of Lady Chatterley's Lover and then they did something that is confident at a level I could only ever hope to achieve for myself (laughs) because they sent 12 copies you heard me right 12 copies of the unabridged book to the director of public prosecutions and asked him to try and prosecute them like (laughs) the sass going on in this situation is absolutely mind-blowing imagine you were like okay guys so we want to go and publish like the full collection of D.H. Lawrence's works for his 30th anniversary. Like, let's get this book unbanned. Like, it never should have been banned in the first place. Yeah, okay, let's get a legal team together. Okay, yeah, so we've got the legal team together. And I just imagine they're all sitting inside a big room, like in a big group, and they're like, right, any any other bright ideas, guys? And someone's like, I think we should send 12 copies to the director of public prosecutions. And I just love that everyone agreed with that. (laughs) Everyone was like, like nowadays, the culture is such with like the law and things like that, that you would just never, you would never risk being that bold. And I love that someone was like, it was either that they all, all the directors of whatever board is part of Penguin, all the publishers, they all sat in a room and agreed that. Or I also love the, The second possibility, by the way, none of this is fact. I'm just postulating. I also love the second possibility that some just like intern was like, hey, you know what? (laughs) You know what would be really funny? Is if we sent him 12 copies of this book with that says the word fuck a million times and also says the word C-U-N-T a million fucking times. Like, it's just, it's just amazing. What a fabulous, fabulous turn of events. And so the director of public prosecutions, after he was asked to attempt to prosecute Penguin, um, began that process. And just as a side note, I uh, just wanted to like make a little note here. It's in my, in my notes. Um, in case you don't know what the director of public prosecutions is, because I certainly didn't know who that was until I looked into this. Um, so I have a definition here. Um, which I'll be to you. So, quote, the DPP through the CPS is responsible for the conduct of all criminal prosecutions instituted by the police and he may intervene in any criminal proceedings when it appears to him to be appropriate. Some statuses require the consent of the DPP to prosecution. End quote. Now, the law that was being tested here was the Obscene Publications Act. That act was in place to create, basically this act created a new offence for publishing obscene material, repealing the common law offence of obscene libel, which was previously used. So they replaced the previous law offence, which was Um, the offence of obscene libel with the new offence which was publishing obscene material um, which was the Obscene Publications Act that we're talking about here. 
And this act also allows justices of the peace to issue warrants allowing the police to seize such materials. So in this context, it is quite a dangerous law because basically what it's opening up for is if the courts or the director of public prosecutions decides that something is inappropriate for the general public, obviously a law like this is here to protect people, right? So it generally it was first thought of um, as being used for pornography or like extreme publications in that vein, but still sexually explicit. So um, that is what the focus of this act was, don't get me wrong. But the problem with it is, is that it was allowing the police to prosecute people, arrest them on a criminal offence for trying to either, um, I don't know what word you would use, like providing this sort of material in publications or creating it. So that is the kind of, that's the kind of interesting part about censorship is that if there are laws in place that make it a criminal offence to harbour or produce this kind of material, that's when, you know, morally and ethically it gets a bit sticky because obviously we have like freedom of speech and things so how are you going to prove or choose what is bad for us and what you don't want us to have access to so as I said it was the obscene publications act was thought of as a way to control pornography but it did turn out to be like quite a creative form of censorship, especially in this case, allowing for criminal consequences of following its breach. The case of Lady Chatterley's lover became the test case for this law. And the law was introduced in the first instance in 1959 and subsequently amended the next year in 1960, and then again in 1964. But the... Um, the iteration of this law that Lady Chatterley's lover is testing is the one that was put in place in 1960. And quite frankly, I really love, I really love Penguin for this. Like they literally said, fuck around and find out to one of the most senior prosecutors in the country. Honestly, absolutely fabulous work, Penguin. Um, so on the 27th of October, a six-day trial ensued at the Old Bailey that had the country gripped like the first episode of the Kardashians. Like, everyone wanted a piece of this. It was garnering so much public interest. Now, the defence was leaving absolutely nothing at all to chance. They produced 35 witnesses. 35. How they concluded this whole affair in six days with 35 witnesses for the defence, I honestly don't know. But in any case, it really highlights the state of the country currently, who took countless years to conclude a Brexit deal. So there you go. Don't come at me for that. I'm just, I'm just saying my thing. You agree, you don't agree. It's okay. <laughs> So, who 
who were the witnesses? I hear you ask. There's so many witnesses. 35, that's a lot. Um, so there must have been some notable people in there, right? Because it's so many people. So I hear you ask and I'm going to tell you. Um, there was three particularly notable witnesses for the defence. The first was Dame Rebecca West, who was a British journalist, novelist and critic. It was perhaps best known for her reports on the Nuremberg trials of Nazi war criminals. So you can look her up. E.M. Forster was a British novelist, essayist and social and literary critic. His fame rests largely on his novels named Howard's End, which was written in 1910, and A Passage to India, which was written in, or published in 1924. Um, so I'm sure you've heard of those if you are a little bookworm of the classics. And another notable witness for the defence was Richard Hoggart, who was the founder for the Birmingham Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies. So very apt in this situation to be a witness here. So he was the institutional, which, sorry, not he was, the Birmingham Centre for Contemporary Cultural Arts was the institutional origin of what has become the global field of cultural studies. So um, I just find that really super interesting because of the topic of censorship and how that pertains to culture and how, you know, the book was banned and stuff. It's just, it's really curious. So um, definitely go and have a look at those people if you're interested to see what their lives were like and, and what um, contributions they gave to the trial. But during the trial, I told you I had some juice for you. So <laughs> during the trial... Things played out really, really, really badly for the prosecution. And look, let me just say, this dude, when I tell you about this dude, you're just going to, your eyes are going to roll so far back into your head, you're never going to find them again. This dude, Marvin Griffith Jones, said the most crazy thing I've heard whilst researching this band book. He said... During a trial in a courtroom with a mixed jury and various witnesses, is it a book you would wish your wife or servants to read? Let me just repeat that quote for anyone who missed it in the back. Open quote. Is it a book you would wish your wife or servants to read? end quote. I mean, first of all, he said this in the year 1960. The year 1960. Not 1660, not 1760, fucking 1960. My mum was born five years later than this. And he was like, is this a bit you want your wife or your servants to read? fuck off dude and and he said servants like fucking so rude this guy is unbelievable and literally so out of touch I can't believe he said this one of my biggest gripes with 
most people in positions of power is that they just have no idea what's going on in the world around them. It's just shocking vibes. The vibes are fucking off, babes. Like, they're off as fuck. And secondly, that he thinks he can control his wife to such a point that he has, like, an approved leading risk. Whoa, I just said those words completely back to front. Um... That he can control his wife to such a point that he has an approved reading list for her. I mean, absolutely what is going on here? If my boyfriend came up to me and he was like, these are the only books that you can read forever until 10 years later I find another appropriate piece of literacy for you to read. I I don't know what I would do. I, I would probably just run away and like hope that that person could never find me again. What the fuck is going on? Similarly, and another even more worrying part of this quote is that wives and servants were in the same category for him, meaning he may as well have not bothered making the differentiation at all. He didn't even need to say wives and servants. He should have just said like, he should have just said concubines and left it there. Like, I don't know why he even bothered like using more breath than he needed to. Um... So that dude attended, (laughs) I'm sure you can guess how I feel about that um, without me going further into it, so let's carry on. Now, the jury was made up of three women and nine men. So although the jury wasn't particularly balanced, um, like it was in fact super unbalanced, at this time, this really worked in Penguin's favour. Because the book was spectacularly popular amongst young men in particular. Not limited to them though, but it it definitely was very, very, or at least visibly very popular amongst men. So this likely played a part in Penguin's triumph as well during the trial. But the trial was not just a triumph for the well-known and well-respected Penguin Publishing Company. It was also an important win for all British publishers as a whole, as this trial changed the landscape of publishing forever in the UK, making it much more difficult for other works to be banned on the grounds of obscenity from then onwards. Obviously, there have definitely been others, and I'm sure we'll get to see them in the rest of this series, but this trial no doubt with the support of the court of public opinion, it definitely did change things. However, I'm just coming at you with all the juice today, like be happy. Um, (laughs) However, and what I think was the universe's cosmic slap to the face for D.H. Lawrence and his book, within a year, Lady Chatterley's lover had sold two million copies outselling even the bible the only other person that has done that in the last 20 years well there's been someone else now and i can't remember who it was but the only other person apart from the newest person and it sounds really bad but i don't know who it is um was jk rowling um so there is a new there is a new person and i wonder if it might have been the lady who wrote twilight or the person who wrote um, Fifty Shades of Grey. I think it might be that one that overtook the Bible um, more than J.K. Rowling. So anyway, we can look it up in post, but um, yeah. So that happened, which I was like, 
karma is just delicious. Karma will always have your back. So W and G Foil Limited, who were like one of the biggest UK publishers at the time and one of the biggest bookshops, told the press that the 300 copies it had bought sold out in 15 minutes. So they released the book, the 300, they had 300 copies in their store and it sold out in 15 minutes. It literally takes me longer than that to wake up in the morning. Like I can't get out of bed faster than faster than 15 minutes. There's no way. Um, so props, 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 props to the people of London for their insatiable appetite for smut and soft porn. Like good on you. <laughs> they really, they were committed to the cause and they saw it through. Um, so they immediately ordered 3,000 more copies in order just to keep up with the demand. Similarly, Selfridges, a famous department store in London, if you don't know, sold 250 copies in minutes, later telling the Times newspaper, it's bedlam here. We could have sold 10,000 copies if we had had them. So Lady Chatterley's lover later became known as Lady C. It was also a bestseller in the Midlands and the North. Um, when I was reading the research for this, I assumed they meant Scotland or like Newcastle at the very least, uh, but they didn't mention us at all. So um, not that I'm bitter or anything, but I'm just making a note. Uh, <laughs> and the sales were described as terrific. So all in all, I think culturally, this win by Penguin in the trial really proved the point of the book. The ultimate message behind D.H. Lawrence's work in the first place was that women and men must follow their desires for passion and love, notwithstanding any expectations or rules imposed on them by an overly cautious and suffocating societal proclivities. So, he really proved his point <laughs> in a way I don't think he even imagined. So um, that was a really good end to him um, in the end. But yes, yeah, so pub uh, publish. Uh, Penguin released a full collection of all of D.H. Lawrence's works on, his, on the year 30th anniversary of his passing. So it was a good win all around. All right, so that was my fifth, sixth, and seventh sense on um, Lady Chatterley's Lover. I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. I know I've had loads and loads of fun recording it, so I really appreciate it if you made it to the end. Um, and I hope you all have an absolutely fabulous week. I'll be back next week with some more stories for you. It'll be part four of The Label Maker which I know has been long awaited, um, but it just needed some extra work and I'd rather give it to you in its best form than some sort of shit form. So <laughs> thank you for your patience for waiting for that. But yeah, I hope we all have a fabulous week and um, don't forget you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Sophie Stories Podcast. Um, and you can also find all my other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Deezer. Hope you have a fabulous week and stay curious. Bye. Thank you.